Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Now that the fall is upon us, there is a lot of good stuff to watch on the TV from the final episodes of season five of Billions, a show that we'll be doing a deep dive on a couple weeks from now with the show's co-creator and showrunner, Brian Koppelman, and you will not want to miss that to Jeff Daniels in American Rust, to the return of Dexter in November, and that's just on Showtime. Just happens to be the home of another little show you might want to check out, a show I have hmm, a tiny bit to do with called The Circus, which just returned to air for an eight-week run. But listen, I don't discriminate. There's a lot of great stuff to watch or look forward to all over the place. On HBO, there's scenes from A Marriage with Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. That's already up and running. And the much-awaited God, it's so eagerly awaited. Third season of Succession. Thank God it's back in October. And on Hulu next month, there's Danny Strong's limited series Dope Sick about the opioid epidemic with the great Michael Keaton. On Netflix, we've got Eva DuVernay's docudrama on the young Colin Kaepernick coming up. And then on Apple TV, the return of Jon Stewart to regular political commentary. And who isn't psyched for that? But I'll tell you what, amid all of these delicious televisual feasts, there is no series I have devoured more ravenously or found more satisfying than the brand new four-part documentary on the greatest. Muhammad Ali, currently airing and streaming on PBS, a series about the most important athlete of the 20th century, and a series that, like Ali itself, is about much more than sports. It's about race and religion and politics, and because of all of that, it feels as urgent and relevant and necessary right now as any series I have seen in a long time. And that's not totally surprising since the series' co-producer and co-director is a documentarian whose work is generally all of those things, which is to say urgent and relevant and necessary. We're delighted to have him here with us today, Ken Burns. The state of our union is in deep trouble. We're in the middle of the fourth great crisis in the United States after the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II, beset by three different viruses, a two-year-old novel coronavirus, a 402-year-old virus of white supremacy and racial injustice, and an age-old human virus of lying, misinformation, conspiracy, and paranoia. There is no documentarian, living or dead, who has dominated that art form as totally as Ken Burns has, in the process becoming a household name, a filmmaker whose techniques are so seminal and pervasive that even if you're the rare human being who's never seen a Ken Burns doc, you are likely familiar with what's known as the Ken Burns effect, applying a slow zoom to still photos to give them energy and movement if you've ever used Final Cut Pro or other video or photo editing software. Burns has been mm, burnishing, (laughs) burnishing his craft for more than 40 years. His first film on the Brooklyn Bridge aired in 1981, and since then he has cranked out a vastly ambitious, supremely high-quality body of work with truly mind-boggling regularity. From the nine-part, 11-and-a-half-hour The Civil War in 1990, to the nine-part, 18-and-a-half-hour Baseball in 1994, to the 10-part, 19-hour Jazz in 2001, to the 10-part, 18-hour The Vietnam War in 2017. Muhammad Ali, unlike its subject, is modest by comparison, just four episodes clocking in at around eight hours. But with its huge thematic reach, its abundance of engrossing narrative arcs and electrifyingly iconic characters, and its panoramic sweep across the convulsive eras of the 1960s and early 1970s, the series, which Burns created with his oldest daughter Sarah and her husband David McMahon, is persistently riveting and entirely satisfying. 
There have been, of course, many books and documentaries about Muhammad Ali, most notably Leon Gass, Transcendent, Academy Award winning When We Were Kings, focusing on the rumble in the jungle between Ali and George Foreman. But what Burns and his colleagues have done here is what Ken has built his singular career upon, the definitive, comprehensive, big-swing look at a larger-than-life figure who, five years after his death in 2016 at the age of 74, still remains as fascinating and compelling as ever, and as genuinely radical and heroic as anyone who has occupied the public stage in my lifetime. The first episode of the series premiered this past Sunday night, September 19th, and the finale drops tomorrow night, Wednesday, September 22nd. But you can stream all four episodes right now and into the future at pbs.org or on your favorite streaming device, you know, Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, etc., etc. Just got to use the PBS video app for that. But first, you're going to want to listen to what Ken Burns has to say, not just about Muhammad Ali, but about how Muhammad Ali fits into Burns's life's pursuit of capturing, explaining, and telling the large stories that make up the even larger story of America itself, a country that contains multitudes, good and bad, ugly and beautiful, saints and sinners, and many, many moments of truly transcendent beauty that sit right alongside 245 years of hell and high water. He called himself the greatest, and then proved it to the entire world. He was a master at what is called the sweet science, the brutal and sometimes beautiful art of boxing. Heavyweight champion at just 22 years old, he wrote his own rules, in the ring and in his life, infuriating his critics, baffling his opponents, and riveting millions of fans. At the height of the civil rights movement, he joined a separatist religious sect whose leader would, for a time, dominate both his personal life and his boxing career. He spoke his mind and stood on principle even when it cost him his livelihood. He redefined black manhood, yet belittled his greatest rival using the racist language of the Jim Crow South in which he had been raised. Banished for his beliefs, he returned to boxing an underdog, reclaimed his title twice, and became the most famous man on earth. Muhammad Ali was, the novelist Norman Mailer wrote, the very spirit of the 20th century. And that is the beginning of Ken Burns' new magnificent, I will say, series on Muhammad Ali called Muhammad Ali. Ken, it's great to have you here on Hell and High Water. I have been wanting to do an interview with you about some project of yours for, it feels like, years. And finally, I was able to hook you to get on this thing with me. So I appreciate it. And we're going to have a great conversation today because I love this series. I love Thank it. you. And I and I have to say right off the bat, it is co-directed by Sarah Burns yep. and her husband, David McMahon. We've collaborated on the Central Park Five and Jackie Robinson, they also happen to be the writers of this who wrote those words. And she also happens to be my oldest daughter. It's interesting that you're working with your daughter and I'm sure an incredibly satisfying experience. Uh, you know, one of the guys who's in this series a lot is a guy named John Ig, who is a college classmate of mine. You probably do not know that, Ken, who wrote a book about Muhammad Ali. And it, the obvious first question is, you, as I see John Ig, who wrote a, a great book about Ali, there have been a lot of great books about Ali. You know, David Remnick, also in the series, wrote a good book about Ali, a very limited slice of his life. There have been great movies and docs about Ali. I mean, When We Were Kings is one of my favorite documentaries ever made. We'll talk about that. Truly one of the great documentaries ever made, feature length about the rumble in the jungle. 
So why Ali for you? Why Muhammad Ali? What was it that made you say it's time for Ken Burns to turn his attention to this topic? We know it's, it's Jonathan's fault in a way. We'd worked with him and another producing team on our history of prohibition and then we're about to work with him on Jackie Robinson and he was deep into the Ali biography and said, boy, you should think about him. He said to Sarah and Dave and they said yes in a nanosecond, came to me and I said yes in a nanosecond. You know, justifying doing Ali is so interesting. It's so obvious. This is a man who intersects with all of the important themes of the last half of the 20th century. This is the role of sports and society, the role of the black athlete, uh, ideas of black masculinity and black manhood about the variety of the civil rights movement, which we tend to put into one narrow box, just like we tend to think that all black people think alike and they do not. This is about race, of course, the age-old American original sin, as historians say. It's about politics, about war. It's about faith. It's about religion. It's about sex. I mean, everything that we're dealing with now, Muhammad Ali touched. And so you, what you have a story of, of freedom and courage and, and love that is just unsurpassed. I, I can't believe we didn't do it before, but maybe we just had to have the chops to, to do it now. And we also started this seven or eight years ago. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, we just conceived of it yesterday and it's now here. But I do want to address what you said. There are many, many documentaries on Muhammad Ali and some of them, as you pointed out, particularly when We Are Kings are among the greatest documentaries ever made. We're not in any way casting any aspersions on them at all. We're just saying that those are about a single fight or about a couple of fights or about a few years in his life. We just wanted to do soup to nuts from birth and boyhood in Jim Crow segregated Louisville to death by Parkinson's not a few years ago and just try to focus on, you know, not just the boxing stuff, which is right. super important and central. And the really great fights are like the collected works of William Shakespeare. You yeah. just can't. Yeah. It's the concentrated just greatness and improbability of all those things. But also this journey in faith that he takes, also the personal life, the money, the friends, yeah. the all of that we needed to figure out a way to integrate. So we felt like we could say something new. That's not the reason why you do it. You just want to tell a good story. And I think right. it's possible to tell a good story in this circumstance and to uncover because it's PBS and they give us the time, a lot of time. you know, do the deep dive that finds that stuff that's never been seen before. And there's tons of it in this. You're, you are sure are more of a student of Ali than I am now, but I'm, I've been a student of Ali's for a long time. And I found things in this that I'd never seen before or heard before. There's great archival in it. And it's, like I said, it's a magnificent job. And I obviously think one of the things that is one of your strengths that you've built a career on in some ways is being comprehensive, being contextual, uh, not doing the short, tight narrative, but doing the big swing, the David Halberstam version, the Robert Caro version, the big canvas. And obviously Ali is deserving of that. I do want to talk about the athletics. Obviously, I want to talk about the politics and the other stuff you said, the politics, the religion, the sport, the race, all that. But let's just start with one thing. And I've seen you talk about it. And it's the thing that always stands out to me more than anything can. You're a decade, I think, older than me, roughly. We're, we're now both getting to be old men. So we, we saw Ali, you know, when he was in his prime and when he was in his decline. Yeah. But as you look at the whole thing from the early years through the post-ban after he was banished from the sport for a period of time when he came back in the early 70s, throughout all of that, the word that comes to me always when I watch him in all of that time is just beauty beauty i mean he is just a fucking beautiful man he is just, you look at him and think i've never seen anything like this someone who is this beautiful who moves the way he moves he is art and poetry in a human form even if you hate the violence of boxing you can't not be kind of 
flabbergasted by what a gorgeous creature the man was. I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm almost moved to tears. I find myself now in the bittersweet moment of having to leave uh, him to you. Now it's all, now he's yours. Our film is done. Yes, he's so beautiful, and he's saying I'm beautiful. I'm pretty as a girl, he says, but he's always been. I made a film about Jack Johnson who was only for Jack Johnson. Same kind of style, same right. kind of problems with the government, same times of provocative stuff, bringing out the worst racism in other people, and sometimes yourself in this case, but at least for everybody else. So he's empowering in that beauty, and I think that if Michelangelo were around, you know, he'd look at David, he goes, well, maybe yeah. not David, maybe I'll do Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he is just a beautiful, beautiful specimen of a human being. And it is, it's something that is so interesting to talk about because he had a kind of a sense of who he was from the very beginning and a sense of purpose. And we all know the origin story is bike stolen. He's going to go down and he trying to find a cop and the cop is teaching kids black and white out of box. And he's, you know, becomes a boxer and it's wonderful and it's convenient. But I had a sense even before then that he knew he was destined for something else. Yes. And that it makes him a kind of avatar or an apostle, whatever you want to say of love. That's the complicated thing to talk about. And part of that is just, as you say, it's the physical beauty of this person, which right. makes the physical journey painful because you hurt. If you identify in any way, yeah. you hurt when he hurts. Well, and you know, it's also the beauty of the words. And you say that it's a manifestation of love. I also think of it as being, he's just this, as Mailer says, you know, the 20th century in America, he's such an American figure because of the degree, uh, to your point about self-consciousness, there's this willful act of self-creation, his understanding of himself, the audacity of it for a kid with no money in a kind of lower middle class neighborhood, black lower middle class neighborhood in Louisville, who to have the audacity to see himself the way that he clearly did see himself, and then to project that identity out into the world and become what he became. The reason I played that that narration from the top of the series is because it encapsulates this life that's just kind of unbelievable. If you wrote it's me, if you if you wrote the story as fiction, you'd be like, "Come on, give me a break. No one could be this, right?" <laughs> yeah, but he, he wills himself to be those things. This is what's to me that overtook us all, and I can't speak for Sarah and David, but I think if they were here, they would agree. What overtook us all was just this sense of of destiny in a way. I mean, these are words we do not use in use, our right. conversations. There's a one point when. Elijah Muhammad isn't so happy with him being involved in sports. They frown on it as frivolous. And he's talking very soft-spoken to reporters. He goes, yeah, well, I don't have, maybe I'll quit boxing. I don't have to box. What? You'd give up a career? Yeah, I don't need to box. But I know what, I'm here for something. And right. you then realize, and at the end of the film, his daughter Rashida says, you know, boxing was just this much, pinching her fingers together. Yeah. And you realize, you know, he could have been a simple carpenter. And we know where simple carpenters go in this yeah. uh, mythology of the world. <laughs> Before we talk about the fighting and we talk about some of the other things, just say this other large top line thing. And it's now widely discussed. But, you know, he's obviously a secular saint now. Everybody, it's the least controversial thing in America to say, God, I love Muhammad Ali. Right. You know, I got my Supreme T-shirt with my Muhammad Ali picture on it. And when I wear that T-shirt, people come up to me all the time and say, oh, man, I love that T-shirt. Love Muhammad Ali. White people, black people, old people, young people. When in truth, for a large part of the time when he was at his greatest, he was despised, not just hated, but signified so much that many, mostly white, but not only white, not only white, no, 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 Americans who looked at him and said, shut the fuck up, you arrogant asshole. People rooted for Patterson to beat him. They rooted yeah. for Frazier to beat him. They rooted for everybody to beat him. He was one of the great villains in a lot of people's minds in this period of time. And I just want you to talk about what you think 
were the things that turned the key? Was it yeah. the athletic accomplishments being right about Vietnam? What were the things that made Ali go from villain to unequivocal hero? First of all, I, I think what you said earlier, he just was who he was. And there's something about authenticity in whatever form that will out. You know, he's just resolutely himself all the time. So in many ways, what you're asking is a question not of him, but of us. But of us. We changed. We said, oh, this war in Vietnam wasn't right. Oh, why is it that we presuppose that a black man can't celebrate himself and his blackness? Why is it that someone can't celebrate their talents? You know, that permeates our media culture. I mean, I walk out in New York City, I live in New Hampshire, and I still have to, every block, there's six people taking pictures of themselves for some <laughs> social media, which is, of course, not social media. This is all we are right yeah. now. So I think that in many ways, yes, uh, I believe that he's right on Vietnam. He also handles the Frazier thing really well. He's been horrific in his treatment of Joe Frazier, but yeah. when he loses, he knows he's behind on points. He tries to get ahead in the last round, and in his effort, he exposes himself. Frazier knocks him down. He's up right away, finishes out the fight, and then afterwards says, you know, look, I'm responsible for reminding people that failure happens, that you lose a job, you lose a loved one, you lose a title, and we have to figure out this is what life is. And so all of a sudden he's speaking, and Lipsight, Robert Lipsight, who's a cub reporter at the beginning and follows him all the way through as Dave Kindred and Jerry Eisenberg are in this film, says this wonderful thing, you know, Frazier wins the fight, but Ali wins America. Yes. It's the beginning of his coming back. And Jonathan Ike says, you know, this is the moment. The loss to Frazier is the moment when I put his picture up on the wall. It's that he handled loss with a kind of dignity, dignity that permitted right. him to have the third or the fourth or the 10th act that he's had. I mean, he is so many different things. I mean, somebody asked me a few hours ago, like, what is the moment you'd like to remember Ali? And I go, wait, the kid banging the pans, the kid who put on boxing glove and a few days later says he's going to be the greatest, the guy who has the Russians loving him in the Rome Olympics, the guy who withstands the liniment in the Liston fight, the guy who stands up against the powers that be with regard to the Vietnam, the guy who loses to Frazier, the guy who beats Frazier, the fight again in Kinshasa against Foreman, the third Frazier, which has got to be the greatest right. Shakespearean drama of all the time, the uh. decline and the losses, or even then the Buddhahood, as David Remnick would say, of the silent years, the yes. last three decades in which he becomes this, this amazing ambassador for humanity. And so when he lights the torch 25 years ago, shaking hands, you know, only the most unreconstructed of our brethren can hold a grudge. But it means he hasn't done anything different. Right. He's just, he's still the same person. I mean, there are a lot of people who want to turn this into a dialectic. Oh, when he could no longer talk, then he's safe. I, I don't buy into that. I think that we changed. I think we, we grew just a little bit, which is an improbable thing to say about Americans. I want to put a pin in the notion that one of the great things about this series is that it's not just hagiographic. And I, I really yeah, want to talk about this in a little more detail because I want to talk about you're very unsparing about his philandering. You're very unsparing about the cruelty towards Frazier. You're very unsparing towards him. So I want to get back to that in a second. But on the athletics, right, it's clearly the case that the fallibility is crucial. That's the moment when he has gotten the beating that people wanted him to take, that nobody likes someone who announces they're the greatest and they are the greatest, you know, and they win, they never lose. But losing, the question is, how does it test you? How does it yes. test your grace, your humanity, your fortitude? And Ali is not found wanting in that. He's found to be, we didn't know. I mean, he could have been just an incredibly talented braggart, but he wasn't. He was someone who could then gather himself up and come back. And I, I, I do want to talk about those fights for this reason. 
you know, when I watch him, that first Frazier fight, obviously a classic fight. But for me, it's still maybe because I'm such a fan of when we were kings. The rumble in the jungle to me is everything. And partly it's everything because it's so deeply connected to so many important political things. Yes. But also, I was saying this to my assistant yesterday. We were talking about this. Who hasn't seen when we were kings? And I was urging this young man, rumble, young man, rumble, go watch the boomy, <laughs> right? He just watched your film and was loving it. And I said, the thing about that movie, because it allows you to have two hours to go deeper on it, and you have some of it in yours, is the thing of the improbability of how Ali now as a reduced fighter, older, needing to get by on guile and intelligence, foreman this monster, this just right. human wrecking crew, everyone assuming that Ali will lose and him going through the training. And I remember Mailer saying he just from weeks, it was, I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. I won't be able to find me. George will not be able to catch up with me. And then getting to the fight and not dancing and not dancing and letting Foreman beat him senseless for not senseless, senseful for round after round. And then the moment when it turns and Foreman is punched out, it's like a thing. Again, if you wrote it down on paper, you're like, that could never work. That's the kind of thing that's a, a strategy. But to see the strategy play out that brilliantly and to see him execute it and then have it unfold, it is like a, a Hollywood movie, just that fight itself. People loved him and knew he was going to get whooped. Yeah. People in his corner were worried about whether he would be hurt yes. or killed. Yes. They had no idea that he was going to abandon the, the shuffle and go for the rope-a-dope, and they're screaming at him, get off the ropes, get off the ropes, and he understood. Look, I don't know, John, I, I get why you say that one, but whenever I'm about to land on that one as the best one, then I think, of, I think of the third Frasier, yeah. or I think of the first Liston, and I just go, they're all just, I mean, but no Rocky film matters anymore, right. because these are all contrivances. Right. These are all invented, and if you want drama in the ring, as I said, his fights are the collected works of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Some are lesser, some are minor, some are, are unbelievable. But if you want your great epic story, it's in that fight in Kinshasa. It's in the first Liston. It's in the third Frazier as well as the first Frazier. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you haven't gone to one fight. You said <laughs> there are a lot. But the, just as you so beautifully described the interiors briefly of the Rumble in the Jungle – so too do all of those other fights have kind of contours. You know, our secret weapon in the film is Michael Bent, the former heavyweight yes. champion who's embedded. So good. So who's good. Who's embedded in every fight that of a consequence that we do because, you know, look, I'm not a boxing fan. I, I don't really care about it that much. I care about people who transcend it like Jack Johnson, but particularly Muhammad Ali. And I know that a lot of people are going to come to this saying, I don't like boxing. And I think that what's important about Bent is he gives you not only the strategy and tactics, he gives you the psychology and the and the internal dramas and the wills and the hearts and the passions of the people involved. And all of a sudden, it becomes a different kind of warfare. Right. It, the brutality doesn't diminish, but you're able to find a place to put the brutality into some artistic context. And then it becomes maybe for a brief second, the sweet science as boxing is improbably told said. I mean, he gives you just so much material, right? I mean, that's the thing. There's the, and then the interiority is all there. You're right. It's all Shakespearean in its quality. But, but here's, you know, we make the transition from 
he's obviously the most important athlete of the 20th century. It's not even close. There's no one who's no, even, no there's no one even close to it to where he is. There's one man, Matt Rushmore, when it comes to his importance as an athlete, his greatness as an athlete. But here's why, of course, we care so much because the story intersects with all these other things. And I just want to play one piece of sound here because we just talked about the rumble in the jungle. Let's listen to, to Ali talking about Foreman. And, and here's what I want you to think about before we play this, everybody who's listening and Ken is Ali, when they first tried to draft him, he failed an aptitude test. And he said, I, I'm the greatest fighter, but I never said I was smart, right? Now listen to him talk, and we'll talk about his intelligence on the other side. For this fight, I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning and put thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. I have murdered a rock. I injured a stone and I hospitalized a brick. I'm so bad, I make medicine sick. I'm so fast, man. I can run through a hurricane and don't get wet. When George Fulman meets me, he'll pay his debt. I can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. Wait till you see Muhammad Ali. I mean, it's it's doggerel, right? But the most incredible doggerel, right? It's like it's hip hop. He's the original. He's doing hip hop in 1974. And you're, you think about that. How does this man fail an aptitude test? He's a fucking genius. Ken. He's a genius. He's, he's a genius. He's a complete genius. He just didn't pay attention in school, but it didn't matter. As his principal said, when the teachers wanted to flunk him and deny him the diploma, they said the only thing that he's going to need to sign, Mr. Clay's going to need to sign is his IRS forms, you know? Yes. <laughs> they, knew, they knew that he was going yeah. someplace. But yeah, I mean, to drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree, you know, this is this is too much and it's transcendent. And I love these moments. You yes. Know, my favorite one is this reflective one, John, and maybe it's getting off the beaten path here, but when the Supreme Court yes. unanimously, but on a technicality, liberates him from his prison sentence, you know, somebody sticks a microphone in. He could have been gloating. He could have recited poetry. He could have danced up and down, been defiant, been arrogant, been all of those things. And in not, when somebody said, what do you think about the system? He says, well, I don't know who will be assassinated tonight. I don't know who will be enslaved or mistreated. I don't know who will be deprived of some other justice or equality. So I can't say nothing. All I can talk about is my case. And I'm thankful that the courts recognized my sincerity and my beliefs in this case. I mean, he's looking yes. back at all of the history of blacks. He's looking ahead to George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, 11 years old, and Breonna Taylor of Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, you just you just go, who is this guy? Who is this guy who, who has that presence in a moment when we'd all be jumping out? Yeah, they vindicated me. It's right. great. No. He's thinking about, you know, Emmett Till, whose open casket his mother had the courage to show, and it deeply affected him. Till wasn't that much older than Cassius Clay at that time, and man, it's this is the whole story of us, and we'll get, I know, to that, yeah. but it's those moments you just go, yeah, this guy's not qualified? Come on. You know, when the Supreme Court took away the threat of going to prison, of having his whole life really end over having stood on principle and not submitted to being drafted in Vietnam, obviously... That story is central to the whole Ali life. And it places us in the middle of why he matters so much, right? Because it yes. does intersect with the politics and the principle and the religion and the race, everything that was the currents of the 60s, right? And I think about it now, you know, we cheaply talk about a lot of pop. And I, I don't diss to Colin Kaepernick because Colin Kaepernick, you know, his desire to take a knee has it cost him? Oh, it has cost him, you know? It has cost him. There's no diss to Colin Kaepernick when I say what I'm about to say. But Muhammad Ali faced the full, unrelenting force of the federal government for a decade. And the opprobrium of uh, that was mu just, you know, was overwhelming of much of white America 
he was persecuted and prosecuted. And you think about how he was for a lot of people, public enemy number one, you know, right. in the popular consciousness. And I guess I would like you to talk about this element because I think that is yes. part of what makes him transcendent. Yeah, I agree completely. And is that he's in the middle and of and all let's of that. Let's not pile on Colin Kaepernick, but you know, I'm he's, not piling he's, on. I know you were, and I just wanted to agree with you and to say that, but you know, he's got his Nike contract and yeah. I don't know whether he's still being paid for not playing. And he's not risking going to jail. He does have to face a kind of, you know, in a completely bifurcated, supposedly social world with the internet and stuff like that. He's faced the opprobrium of some, but he's also yes. a hero to many of us for this principled stand. But it's nothing like Muhammad Ali, where he's dipping in to his second wife, Belinda, later Kalila's college fund in order to just survive. I mean, you can think of Carlos and Smith at the Olympics in 68. They disappeared. Kurt Flood tried to challenge the plantation system of the reserve clause in baseball. He was a black man. He disappeared. It would take white guys to do it. But nobody else faced what Muhammad Ali faced. And so I think he then is the shoulder, the giant shoulders that so many people who speak out, but don't really risk things. You know, we, we can set aside the people in their particular sports, the Michael Jordans, maybe the Tom Brady's who don't speak out about stuff, who are the best. But I'd rather not, they've got right. the right to shut sure. up as much as they have to speak. But I think it's important to celebrate the LeBron Jameses. We have a constitution, we have a bill of rights. The shut up and dribble thing is beyond offensive. Yes, Everybody has the right to say what they say. But I think the model that is in sports, it's Muhammad Ali and the willingness to sacrifice absolutely everything, including he said his life. He's willing to face a firing squad, he said today, yes. a, a machine gun today, yes. rather than go against his teachings. And I think it's easier to talk about this in a political dynamic. That's a dialectic of on and on, yes and no. But it's really just a black man making a faith-based decision. Yes. And America in the middle of the 60s and America in the 2020s can't stand a black man making a faith-based decision. They just see it as a political middle finger to the United right. States of America. And so while the prosecutors are suggesting X, the judge throws the books and gives him the maximum because this can't possibly be Principal. a religious yeah. thing. And I think it's important for us throughout the film to understand that this is a hero's journey, but it's also a hero's journey in faith. And it grows. It isn't just, oh, he joined the Nation of Islam, full stop, that's it. We understand they've got good parts and bad parts, but it is in fact an evolution of a human being and part of this complicated portrait that we wanted to convey in this hopefully comprehensive look at his life. Well, let's get to that. This is my last question before we take a break. And I said I'd put a pin in this and I, this is a good place to pull the pin out of the wall and ask the question, which is, it's complicated, right? And I said yeah. before you were unsparing, he's a deeply religious man who was a lifelong first adherent to the Nation of Islam, a lifelong uh, adherent to Muslimism, and he puts his principle, as you just described, it's at the core of his decision to risk everything and refuse to go and fight in the Vietnam War. But this deeply religious man was one of the most egregious philanderers you could imagine, and your series points it out. He's constantly fucking around behind his various wives' backs. He's having children out of wedlock. We still probably don't know how many children of Muhammad Ali there are out there in the world at this date. He is a profoundly important figure in the history of the cultural politics of race. And yet, as you point out, and people pointed out at the time, his mockery of Frazier is racist to its core. He is perfectly willing to call other fighters Uncle Toms in his service. He, his mockery, I would say, of Foreman is often racist. Oh, very much so. How do you get your head around that, around these profound, I would say, these are not small contradictions, Ken. These are deep contradictions in the man's character. Yes, and, you know, I can fall back on Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? I contradict myself. 
we contain multitudes. I have in my editing room, John, in lowercase neon script, it's complicated. And we look for, we relish undertow and that kind of complication. Todd Boyd, the scholar from USC, referring to the treatment of Frazier, said that this is the language that a white racist would use to describe a black man. Mm. And then he pauses and he said, I just think in this case, he used his powers for evil and not for good. And then I realized, oh, I get it. This is a superhero, right? Forget about Marvel. This is a superhero in every sense of the word. And the presumption is, is that we have perfection when we don't. His flaws are as large as the rest of his life is large. And so it comes down to us to interpret this and to learn and to be inspired. But of course, we can't sweep it under the rugs. They are inherent contradictions that aren't going to be resolved with anything pretty that I say right now. I can't come up with a rap or a rhyme to do it. He cheated on his wives. Right. He had children out of wedlock. He treated Joe Frazier abysmally. He followed the dictates of Elijah Muhammad and cut off his friend and mentor Malcolm X yeah. just before Malcolm X murder, all of which he tried to atone for at the end of his life. But these are real things. And, and I just think it's what you take. This is the story that we have. And I would suggest that no one within the sound of my voice, including my own ears, is free of some of these things, perhaps writ much smaller than him, but nonetheless writ. And this is the human thing. The Greeks tell us about heroes, not because, you know, we always lament today that we have no heroes, you know, as if somehow a hero is perfect. In fact, the Greeks invented this because heroes were engaged in a strange negotiation, even a war between their strengths and their weaknesses. Yes. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go with his great strengths. So we're looking for these examples bigger than our own to help us grapple with it. So if we need to cancel out Muhammad Ali because of this strike or that strike, then we've lost the possibility for us to grow and learn and develop from these things. So for us as filmmakers, you just say, this is what it is. Even the loving opening scene of him stealing cornflakes from his daughter Miriam is offset by hearing later from Kalila, his second wife, that, you know, he was good for about 20 minutes with the kids. Right. Those of us who have kids, who've changed diapers, who've stayed up all night, who've walked, who've sung, who've done all those things, you know, that's not good either. No. But this is one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. You've met a lot of human beings, Ken, and you've done an incredible, the oeuvre, as they say, is extraordinary. <laughs> I want to take a little dip into it. We would have to do like a 24-hour marathon here if we wanted to cover all of your work, but I want to talk about some of it and tie it together and, and just ask you a bunch of questions that have been on my mind for a long time. So we're going to take a break, play a couple ads, and come back with Ken Burns here on Hell and High Water. And we are back for part two of today's episode of Hell and High Water with Ken Burns, whose incredible four-part documentary on Muhammad Ali is playing right now on PBS. Ken, you've made a lot of stuff. And for anybody who says, well, Ken Burns has you know, done a lot of stuff, he's been around for a long time. Here's the deal. Ken Burns, 1981 is the first movie in the filmography. That's on the Brooklyn Bridge. So you've been doing this for 30 years. 40. 40 years. I'm sorry. I can't do math. Again, I keep doing this. I'm really bad at math. And I started it five years before. So right. it's 45 really 45 years. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just going to say, Brooklyn Bridge, 
The Shakers, Hands to Work, Hearts to God, Huey Long, The Statue of Liberty, Thomas Hart Benton, The Congress, The Civil War, Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio, Baseball, The West, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, Frank Lloyd Wright, The Story of Jazz, Mark Twain, Horatio's Drive, America's First Road Trip, Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson, The War, The National Parks, The Tenth Inning, uh, which is the, kind of the epilogue to the baseball series, Prohibition, The Dust Bowl, The Central Park Five, Yosemite, The Address, The Roosevelts, Jackie Robinson, The Nazis, Vietnam War, The Mayo Clinic, Country Music, Hemingway, and Muhammad Ali. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's funny almost to talk to someone who has this breadth. And I want to hear, I'm going to play this little piece of sound and then we'll come back. This is you, Ken Burns, in 2002. Doing an interview where, where you were asked, what got you into this business? So we'll go from that. And then having heard that whole filmography, and here's a little precis of what this is all about for you. And then we'll go from there. So let's listen to Ken Burns talking in 2002. I'm curious. I guess I'm curious about how my country ticks. And I've been making, I think, the same film over and over again, asking who are we? Who are yeah. these strange and complicated people who call themselves Americans? And each film, of course, never answers the question, deepens it with each inquiry and and i'm just passionately concerned about why we are who we are and the kind of instructive conversation the present can have with the past and how medicinal that can be in certain circumstances so a conversation between the present and the past uh, a lovely image and descriptive and informative you know i just read that very long filmography and i ask you two simple questions that are not going to have simple answers one how did you set on this journey what was it that got you interested in becoming a documentarian, number one? And did you, when you started, did you have any imagining that this was the career, like in your idealized fantasy vision of what your career would be like? Is this sort of basically your career has been your dreams come true? I feel like it probably is. I know. I wish. Uh, 42 years ago, last month, I moved from New York City where I had just finished a good deal of the filming on this film I'd spent years trying to raise the money for on the Brooklyn Bridge. And it was about 75% shot and I needed a real job. My rent was growing up in Chelsea. And I moved to this house in New Hampshire where I live now, same bedroom, same bed, because I thought becoming a documentary filmmaker that seemed to be interested in history was taking a vow of anonymity and poverty. I'm the son of an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist who is an amateur still photographer. My first memory of is of him building a dark room in our basement in Newark, Delaware, where he was the only anthropologist in the state of Delaware. My mother developed cancer and spent 10 years dying, and she died after we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was one of 40 anthropologists. It was a searing, it's the number one event in my life, the loss of my mother. And afterwards, my father let me stay up late and watch movies with him on TV or out at the movies and got a real education. And I watched my dad cry for the first time, not at her sickness, not at her death, not at her funeral. And the second I saw him cry, I realized what a safe haven film would be. So that meant I wanted to be a feature filmmaker. And I went to Hampshire College in the late summer of 1971, which was a new experimental school, been open only one year. And all of the teachers were social documentary still photographers who reminded me quite correctly there is as much drama or more in what is or what was than anything in the human imagination comes up. And two in particular, Elaine Mays and Jerome Liebling, Jerry Liebling, basically became mentors. And I changed from feature films to documentaries and then took a completely untrained and untutored interest in American history, which I'd had all my life and been kind of slightly unconscious of the amount that I loved it. And they came together and it was like, 
I knew what I was supposed to do. But still, after Brooklyn Bridge, if you told me that 40 years later I'd still be making historical films in American history, I'd say, get out of here. No, I'm going to do a feature film. I'm going to do experimental cinema verite. But that's what it is. I found what I was supposed to be doing and found a way of speaking. And most importantly, I think, found PBS, which was willing to wait. I mean, it has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other proudly out. And so... You know, people say, well, you're always fundraising. Why don't you go to a streaming service or a premium case? And I could go to them and say, look, I need $30 million to do Vietnam. And they'd give it to me with my track record. But they wouldn't give me 10 and a half years to do it. And PBS permitted me that time. And I could do a deep dive in Vietnam and do a deep dive in Hemingway or any of the ones that you mentioned on that list. Right. And so it's just a kind of exploration. I mean, it's fortunate. I, I chose history the way I'm a storyteller. I'm a filmmaker. That's my thing. I'm not a historian. The last time I took a history class was in my first year of college. I took Russian history. I am a storyteller. And fortunately, I chose history, American history. And that's the way a painter might choose to work in oils as opposed to watercolor. And fortunately, history is mostly made up of the word story plus high, which is a good way to begin a story. So, <laughs> you know, I'm still practicing. I mean, storytelling is just the editing of human experience. Honey, how was your day? You know? Yeah. You, do, you don't say I back slowly down the driveway avoiding the garbage can at the curb unless you get T-boned, at which point that's exactly the way you say it. But this, <laughs> is, this is the editing of human experience. And it's so exhilarating to me. And right now I'm greedier than I was in 2002. Right. I mean, I have, I've got four producing teams. I'm working on eight films beyond Muhammad Ali. And I, you know, if I were given a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of topics in American history. I'm not going to be given a thousand years to live. So I just want to just keep working. I love the process. I mean, we put a name on it and the date that it comes out, but it's really the same, just exhilarating process of overcoming the friction of a million literally a million or five million problems, and we don't see them pejoratively. We just see them as something to be worked out, uh, how to figure out what it is. And each film is that, and some of them are tiny. Some of them are huge, making decisions that are huge about it relative to our small little niche, but it's, it's great. And then they go out, and each one of those films is a director's cut. It's quite a thing, an amateur historian telling these stories. It's quite a thing to have had the kind of sweep that you have. And I guess I w there are three projects that I want to talk about in a little bit more detail. But before I do that, just to kind of get your take on a couple of things, I, th I think of them as being important. I mean, they're all your children, and I'm sure you, they're all important to you in different ways. But I think there are some that have had more impact, obviously, on the public because of when they came along or their scope or whatever. As you think back over that body of work, if I said to you, you know, what sets your work apart? You have enormous admiration for other documentarians. I know you watch them, you study them, you devour them, you admire them, you worship some of them. If someone said, well, what, how's Ken Burns different? What's the thing that sets you apart from the way that others go about this art, this craft of yours? Well, I think in, in large ways, we're unafraid of the word. Right. Our films are, in the, in the most part, not all of them, narrated. And that's often a no-no in the purest world of documentary. So we don't think the word and the image are enemies. I think I'm involved in an emotional archaeology. It's not merely excavating the dry dates and facts and events. And I need to qualify that because the word emotional is so completely misunderstood. I do not mean to suggest that they're nostalgic or sentimental. Sentimentality and nostalgia are the enemies of good anything. But there are higher emotions that our founders were interested in, in creating a circumstance, a government that would work, a machine that would go of itself, that would permit people to have a lifelong learning. That's what the pursuit of happiness means. It's not about things. It's about learning. 
And so I, I'm interested in the emotional archaeology that is the kind of the glue that holds the shards of those dates and facts and events together. And I think we're really disciplined. I think we work really hard. We do deep dives and we're not using the documentaries to score any contemporary political points that makes the films, sure, evergreen. But what they also do is invite everyone to the table. You know, Richard Powers, the novelist, said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. I'm just interested in telling a good story and hopefully that it's told in a way that invites lots of people to the table. Right. I'm disinterested in speaking to the congregation, though I'm aware, as all of us are, that most of the audience that hears us are part of the congregation. And what I'm looking for are not converts to a particular way, but people who are willing to listen and be open to a story. And I think the tens of millions of people who watch these big series yeah. each time they come out, not just Civil War to begin with, but most recently in country music, and we hope in a miniseries-wise, Ali, they speak the fact that somebody has to tell our stories and tell a complicated version of it that is not didactic or attempting overt political points or rhetoric. I just want to take you back to a moment in time here. I'm going to play a little bit of the opening narration of the Civil War series. And I just want to say this series came out in 1990. So roughly 10 years after you started putting stuff out, 15 years, as you yeah. pointed out, if you started down the path of documentarian work and everything you'd done to that point had been feature docs. Right. And all of a sudden now, the world is confronted with this thing from this person named Ken Burns, who's produced a documentary on the Civil War that's 11 hours and 30 minutes long, the first of your big multi-part series. And this is how it starts. So let's play this and we'll talk about the Civil War and how it launched you in a different direction or a similar direction, but still a pretty big departure in terms of some of the scale and sweep of your stuff. The Civil War was fought in 10,000 places, from Valverde, New Mexico and Tullahoma, Tennessee, to St. Albans, Vermont, and Fernandina on the Florida coast. More than three million Americans fought in it, and over 600,000 men, 2% of the population, died in it. Between 1861 and 1865, Americans made war on each other and killed each other in great numbers, if only to become the kind of country that could no longer conceive how that was possible. What began as a bitter dispute over union and states' rights ended as a struggle over the meaning of freedom in America. At Gettysburg in 1863, Abraham Lincoln said perhaps more than he knew. The war was about a new birth of freedom. So can I take you back to that moment? I mean, again, we talked before about Muhammad Ali's audacity. The audacity of a filmmaker who at that point had put some things out, but to go into PBS and say, please give me 11 hours and 30 minutes to make uh, a Civil War documentary. That's an audacious thing to do, even given your level of success to that point. Talk about how you gathered up that audacity and how the making of the Civil War and the reception that it got changed your life and your approach to what you would do in everything after that. Well, you know, I remember I finished on Christmas Day of 1984 a novel by Michael Shara called The Killer Angels that's mainly about the Battle of Gettysburg and mainly about the actions of a colonel of a, the 20th Maine Regiment, which was a hero on Little Round Top. And I said to my dad, I know what my next film is. And he said, what? And I said, The Civil War. And he goes, oh, what part, son? And I, I said, all of it. And he just 
looked at me, shook his head and walked out of the room like my idiot son. And so <laughs> it was my first review of even the idea of it. And we got turned down by normal stalwart supporters like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They eventually came around and I still looked boyish enough that people were sort of kind of convinced this was not the good thing to do. But we tried to tell it all. The we is my brother Rick as a co-producer and Jeffrey Ward, the principal writer. And Rick and I were also writers. Rick wrote that wonderful sentence between 1861 and 1865. Americans made war on each other and killed each other, if only to become the kind of country that could no longer conceive how that was possible. That's one of the better sentences that's ever appeared in my film. It's it's really what it's about. And we were just trying to to rearrange the popular vision that came from the pernicious birth of a nation and gone with the wind, that this upside down version of it, that it wasn't about slavery. That's all part of the intro of the film. Then the series begins in earnest with a quote read by Morgan Freeman by a man who says, you know, I'll get this wrong, but it's sort of like, in thinking about America, I think about her star-crossed mountains and her beautiful this and that and that. But my rapture is soon checked when I realize that it is filled with slaveholding and wrong, that the rivers bear the tears of my brethren daily to the sea, that the fertile soil drinks of the warm blood of my outraged sisters. I'm filled with unutterable love. Loathing. And then the next 15 minutes is a chapter called All Night Forever about the reality of slavery. Because the South Carolina Articles of Secession did not mention states' rights or nullification or interposition. They mentioned slavery, slavery, slavery. And we have just been sold a bill of goods by, you know, the movies and popular culture and by everybody's idea. And, you know, it ends also with where we are right now. Robert E. Lee himself said, make no monuments to the Confederacy. It will only breed bitterness. His statue finally got removed and he'd be the first person to say, why did you even do it? But we know why. It wasn't done right after the war. It was done after Reconstruction collapsed and white rule and Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan were being brutally imposed on black people's lives in the South in the old Confederacy. And those statues went up to say, see, it never really happened. Nothing's changed. We may not be able to own you, but we own your body. And if we don't like the way you look at us or our women, we can kill you. Let me ask you one last question before we take another quick break. I look at the Civil War, which, you know, I mean, I really do think you would agree with me. It announced you as a different thing. It was like the Ken Burns. Nothing really changed. I didn't move any well, I know, but nobody in my little town in New Hampshire well, cares, well, you know, whether I've done that. But yeah, no, it, it was a sea change. Like, for, I mean, like all great artists, when you make a statement of that kind, a thing that long that had that kind of effect, I don't know how many people watched it. I remember that it was a little bit of a roots kind of quality to it. Like everyone seemed to watch it. And then I think about baseball. It comes up a few years later. It's even longer, 18 hours. The Vietnam series comes many years after that, also 18 hours. Do you think of those three? And again, I, I know you, you'll say, you know, I, I, all my children, I love They're them. They're all my children. Yeah. 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 But those three are just enormous undertakings on topics, very different topics. I mean, two of them are wars, but baseball, obviously not a war, but all three of them just enormously significant in the American experience in different ways. Do you think of those three as kind of a holy trinity in some way for you and as being kind of connected in some way? No, no. actually, the original trilogy is Civil War, Baseball, and Jazz. Yeah. So baseball is the sequel to the Civil War because the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War is Jackie Robinson, and people thought I was crazy. And then I saw jazz as the kind of the Holy Ghost to the father and son of the Civil War baseball. And then, of course, we continued. I said I'd never do another war again. But at the end of the 90s, I realized that, you know, 
we were losing a thousand veterans from the Second World War a day, and now that's a much smaller number because the actuarial tables just don't permit it. And that forty something like forty percent of graduating high school seniors thought we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. So I said I got to do World War II. So I did that. I consider that as part of it. And before I even finished it, before the ink was dry on that, I said we're doing Vietnam. And before the ink was dry on Vietnam, I said we're doing the American Revolution. Just because wars are so revealing in not just spectacularly horrible ways, but actually in very very good ways. You sometimes see the best of humanity and the worst because. When your life is losable in any second, everything is vivified to an extent and experience is heightened unlike anything, not sex, not love, not family, not art, not rationality, whatever it is. It's just something different. And I've tried to capture that. But I think jazz is a huge part. I think country music, right. too, that just came out a couple of years ago uh, was also a many, many, you know, many episodes and many, many hours. The Roosevelt's is the longest biography we've done. Muhammad Ali is the second. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to give you the kids thing, which I do all the time. Right. Uh, our most prolific composer is Duke Ellington. I think he's our greatest. And somebody asked him the similar question and he said, the one I'm working on now, you know, and that's the way I feel. I'm going to come back to this in the third part, because I do think that one of the things that holds all those, uh, you just mentioned the original conception of that trilogy, Civil War, baseball, and jazz, all of those are really about race in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I want to talk about race in the third part of of the podcast, which we'll get to after we take a quick break. Give me a quick answer to this question. The Ken Burns effect. Like, okay. like how many people out there in the world of filmmaking of any kind have their own effect where like if I, or if I go to edit something on an Apple product, I, I can get the Ken Burns effect. It's like you're, uh, you're like Kleenex. You're like trademarked, yeah. buddy. And so I, so it's, it comes from my friendship with Steve Jobs. He called me up and said, will you come and visit me? And he showed me this thing and I'm a Luddite. And I said, oh yeah, it looks great. And he said, well, we want to keep the working title. And I said, what is it? And he goes, the Ken Burns effect. I said, I don't do commercial endorsements. And he was like, totally surprised. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he took me into his office and we talked. And I said, after about an hour, I realized we were developing a kind of friendship. And I just said, look, if you give me a lot of hardware and software, literally, and you let me have a couple computers fall off the truck because we don't have any computers, I'm going to give it all away to schools and nonprofits. And it's going to be several hundred thousand dollars worth. He goes, fine. And so we, we started a friendship there that ended to the end of his life. But, you know, the world is divided between people like Burns, you idiot. You should have asked for like a tenth of a penny for every use. I said, are you kidding? You know, Steve Jobs, he would have called it the pan and zoom effect. And that would have been it. <laughs> and the other one was like, how could you have been so stupid to do it for nothing? I just don't want to do a commercial endorsement right. in that regard. But it's so funny because my kids use it all the time. time. Right. I've saved lots of bar mitzvahs and memorial yeah. services and vacations, but I don't use it. And, you know, it, what it is is a simplified version yeah. of our attempt to take the the DNA of my work, which is a still photograph, and wake the dead. Yep. Treat it the way the feature filmmaker I wanted to be would have treated it with a master shot, a wide, a long, a close, a medium, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, all of the stuff. It's waking the dead. It's making a photograph come alive. Man, 40 years ago doing interviews about your work, I will say this, Ken, is that you've come up with a lot of very elegant and lovely ways to describe what you do, which makes you an absolute delight to interview. So let's take this last quick break for a couple of ads, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the subject, um, really what I think is at the core, well, in a lot of ways, the American experience and has been a super important subject for a lot of the work that you've done, which is the question and the problem of race. We'll be right back with Ken Burns here on Helen Highwater. And we are back for the last 
part of our discussion. I really could talk to you, Ken, for 24 hours. I could, I could do this like a dance marathon here. If there was enough charity, we could talk for 24 hours because like, <laughs> there's literally nothing you've done that I don't have 20 questions about. But I do think if you boil it all down, and you've said this, I, I shouldn't act like I've discovered this in some way. You've been asked, and you know, you've talked about how in political terms, the fight between federalism, the between states and national authority is at the core of a lot of our politics over the life of our republic. But at the really even animating that at the center of it all is the question of race. And it brings us back to Muhammad Ali. So I want to play a little more sound here. Let's listen to Muhammad Ali talking about this very question. And then we will talk about race here with Ken Burns on Hell and High Water. I'm always going to be one black one who got big on your white televisions, on your white newspapers, on your satellites, million dollar checks, and still look you in your face and tell you the truth and 100% stay with and represent my people and not leave them and sell them out because I'm rich and stay with them. That was my purpose. I'm here and I'm showing the world that you can be here and still free and stay yourself and get respect from the world. So, Ken, that's Muhammad Ali in the series, basically encapsulating his kind of conception of himself as a race man. Howard Bryant, who's a sports writer, a very good sports writer, who's in the series. And I, I saw a quote from him. I don't know if it's in the series and I missed it or if this was maybe to a, a reporter who was reporting about the series. But Howard Bryant said that it was telling that Muhammad Ali only became beloved in white America when he could no longer talk. I think that there's something powerful to that and some truth in it, too. Talk about the way in which you think that race is the central, really the central issue in a lot of your filmmaking and how Ali in a lot of ways is, is a kind of extension of the work you've been doing, as we said before, on baseball, on the Civil War, on jazz. It just keeps coming back this topic, right? Because it's that central to our experience. You know, I've taken a lot of grief over the course of my professional life because it's always there. If you do anything more than a superficial look at, at American history, you're going to bump into the 35 films that you mentioned, maybe, you know, five, you know, less than the fingers of one hand. Don't deal with race overtly. It just It's just there. I mean, we're born under the idea that all men are created equal, but the guy who wrote that sentence owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the contradiction. How could it not be at the heart of this story of us, both the U.S. and us, the intimacy of us and the kind of the majesty and the complexity and the contradiction and the controversy of us? And so race is at the heart. It's there everywhere. And, you know, we too often use it as a politically correct addenda to our national narrative, consigned to February, our coldest and shortest month, you know, as if it's on the outer orbit of Pluto and not, you know, at the burning sun, the burning center of our story. It's just there. It's unavoidable. And people have given me so much grief, friends, even scholars, certainly a lot of people in the press. And, and by the mid-aughts, people were saying, you know, we're post-racial right now. And then when Barack Obama was elected, they said, now will you stop talking about it? I mean, really good friends. I held up the Onion magazine and it said for January 20th, 2009, black man given worst job in nation. I said, just watch what happens. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to their credit, most of those people have come back and, and apologized and said, yes, race is central to us. It's inescapable. It's at the heart of our national narrative and we have to deal with it. And I try to deal with it. And I also try to integrate it into the story. So if we're doing the history of World War II, which we've done, or the history of the national parks, there is a huge component that isn't just set aside in the February of those films, but is integral to it that are about the African-American experience and the intersection of that with the larger narrative. And at some time, it's the central narrative as it is in Ali, as it is in Jackie Robinson, as it is in Unforgivable Blackness about Jack Johnson, as it is in jazz. Yes. You know, this is the only art form created that's recognized around the world that has its own thing at Lincoln Center. And 
It happens to have been invented by people who have the peculiar experience of being unfree in a free land, which means if our genius is improvisation, they had to improvise even more than the rest of us. And that's a story, as the late critic Arthur Murray said, you know, of affirmation in the face of adversity. This is a good story, and it's our story, and all we need to do is pull the camera back and include it into the narrative, which is what I've tried to do. Well, it's interesting, though, Ken, because the truth is that just your way that you just told that story, the way that you talked about the people's reaction, I'm not giving the slightest bit of grief. I think there's really almost very few stories you can tell that are important in American history in which race is not at least a small part and in many in which it's a dominant part. So I, I think you deserve no criticism for coming back to it again and again, number one. Number two, it is interesting that over the time that you've been doing this for 40 years, that that I bet has never changed, that there is like that reaction that some people have, which is, okay, Ken, are we ready to move on now? Can we not be constantly focused on this? Can we can we put aside, there's such a sense of relief, even though obviously we know it's bullshit, the sense of relief that we're now post-racial, we got Barack Obama got elected, we don't have to think about this anymore, which is obviously, you know, even those of us who didn't fully predict that there would be a backlash, we figured there would be some backlash. We didn't know quite how severe it would be. And I guess the question I want to ask you about this is, you've both made these projects over 45 years. And the span of the time that you've covered goes all the way back to the Civil War, right? So you've confronted the question of race at a oh, lot back of- Back to the 18th century. Yes. And I've just finished a film on Franklin right. who enslaved people in his household and did Jefferson and stuff like that. So it goes all the way. So yeah, Ken, you have confronted race, the issue of race at all these different times in the American experience. And, and you've also made movies over the course of 45 years of the American experience. So I guess my question is what's different now, as we sit here in 2021, you have the historian's eye. So try to take that eye and yeah. put yourself 30 years from now, kind of looking back on today here in 2021, like how race is being lived out and how people react to that topic and, and how it's playing out in American life and how we talk about it and how we consider it. You know, you have the kind of unique vantage on that issue in a lot of ways. I mean, unique vantage. I mean, other than, other than the fact that you're white, you're sort of the perfect person to talk about this in a lot of ways. Well, you know, I, I always fall back on this wonderful thing that King said. He says, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. You know, we're all in this together. There's no divorcing one from the other in these stories. And if you did, then the stories are incomplete. If you feel that you can cover this without dealing with race, then you've got a big problem, much more than my problem of being a white person dealing with it or being given grief by friends and colleagues and critics. Historians are, and I'm an amateur historian, are a kind of a strangely optimistic lot. I don't know why they should be because they're watching the fact that human nature doesn't change. You know, history doesn't repeat itself. It's just we don't change. And so it seems like it's the same because we react the same way. So there are precedents for all the things that are going on right now. The disturbing part is that these presidents seem to have come from on high and they seem to have been able to infect and really challenge long-held assumptions and institutions. And that is incredibly worrisome. At the same time, there are precedents. You know, these knuckleheads today look a lot like the know-nothings of the 1830s, you know. The problem is one of the knuckleheads happened to have lived at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's the terrifying thing. Yeah. And so we're doing a film right now on the history of the U.S. and the Holocaust. And 
it's really about the ways in which we, you know, the Germans came over and studied our Jim Crow laws to figure out how to do their early exclusionary laws against Jews and then stuck around for our eugenics, which people like Teddy Roosevelt and Helen Keller loved. And okay. Americans were buying into Henry Ford's Dearborn newspaper that promoted the protocols of the elders of Zion. And we closed the door, the golden door that Emma Lazarus talked about that's affixed to the Statue of Liberty in 24 and created a quota system in large part to keep out people who were Jewish and who were Catholic and who were coming from places they didn't want them to come from. And so we weren't able to rescue a lot of people out of the Holocaust because our hands were tied. A lot of individual Americans and within the government tried and did do great things and did save lives. But this is not redound as the historian Deborah Lipset says to our benefit. So, you know, this stuff is just always and ever present in our national narrative. And we can take some comfort in that we've seen precedent for it, but where we are right now is unprecedented and terrifying in that when you have people saying things that we thought were conveniently locked away and that good manners and just good Americanness didn't allow you to say that you could have a guy with Camp Auschwitz, you know, in the yeah. middle of the U.S. Capitol. You know what the back of his shirt said? Staff. Oh. That means this guy wants to be killing Jews. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and the fact that this is now been given credence, but you know the picture of the thousands of Klansmen on the steps of the sure, Capitol, sure. welcomed in the 1920s, yes. given the permit to march. You know, this is us, and we've got to face it. And I think the best way to do it is by telling stories in our history, because it gives you the kind of triangulation that perspective allows you to have. But these are worrisome, worrisome, worrisome times. I mean, I thought that the reckoning about race because of George Floyd had a yeah. lot to do with coronavirus in that African-Americans have not wanted to go to the convenience store for forever. And suddenly going to the convenience store was threatening for white people too, or going jogging. You know, that's that's been a, a problem. And I think that we began to say, maybe this is tough, but we've also seen people buying wholesale, a kind of uniform flatter society kind of platform. So I have two more questions. And one of them is a very direct question about this because you have, again, enormous respect that people have for your work and you have been subtle and nuanced and careful and, pro and have taken on these matters of race in such a careful, considered way in your career. And yet I think this may be the first time that I've heard it at least where you've gotten some heat on this Ali documentary where people have said, well, why not? Not that you've done anything wrong, but would it not have been more appropriate to have a black filmmaker making this film? Um, and I've seen that publicly raised in various places. I'd love to hear you talk about that and how it's felt to suddenly having done these incredibly important works that all grapple with this question, as I said, in the ways that you have to now be in this crossfire that our culture has become where people challenge you on the color of your skin. Is it okay for you to be doing this? I'm wholly in support of the aspirations of the people who are supposedly challenging me. I think I just stand out a little bit as a sore thumb. The films are successful. They get a lot of uh, uh, viewers. I actually depend on far less money from PBS than percentage-wise per film than others. The point is not that. The point is that 
we have to create a system in which there's equal access for people to tell their stories, everybody to tell their stories. And we're supporting that. And PBS has always been the best place to do that and are now making even better stands and have asked those of us who are independent producers to also up our game and feel that we can do something. I didn't take it personally because it's not about that. They were talking about a film, Muhammad Ali, you know, months before, this was six months ago before its broadcast. I think it's really important to understand that we have diverse teams that that when we work, we have diverse advisors, we have diverse participants in the film on camera, and that we applaud everyone's effort to tell their own stories. I just don't believe that it's right to then say that only certain people can tell certain stories. And that's that's it. I am drawn with my gut. I mean, I remember when my mom was dying of cancer, and I remember being terrified, lying awake in my bed in 1963, and hearing the television set, and going into my parents' bedroom, and telling them that I was that I had a stomach ache, I couldn't articulate and say, "Mommy, I don't want you to die." And seeing the fire hoses and the dogs in Selma and the truncheons being used, and in some ways, I took on the cancer that was killing my country as a way to sort of ameliorate the cancer that was killing my family and did kill my family. And so I can't not do this, John, and I am incredibly sympathetic to those people who want a bigger place at the table, and I'm dedicated to doing that. I just can't stop what I'm doing. And if it's about race, it's because I'm drawn to this as a good story. If it's America, it's going to have race in it. Right. Well, obviously, I don't want you to stop, and I don't think anybody who's in their right mind wants you to stop. I was going to ask you about the next couple projects and whether they had this theme yeah. in them. And of course, you've already told me that the Ben Franklin thing is your next project. The The Holocaust is the yeah. project. And then I after, that, after that, we're that. working on a history of the American Revolution. And right. this is not about 55 white guys in powdered wigs in <laughs> Philadelphia. It's about loyalists and it's about women and it's about Native Americans right. systematically dispossessed. It's about freed blacks. It's about enslaved people. It's a whole com- It's about British people. It's a very, very complicated dynamic. That's an important story to tell, particularly as we approach the 250th anniversary of the birth of our, our country. We're doing a history of LBJ and the Great Society. We're doing a history of <laughs> called Emancipation to Exodus, which is from the beginning of the Emancipation to the beginning of the Great Migration out of the South by African-Americans seeking, as Langston Hughes said, the warmth of other sons. We're doing a history of the Buffalo, which is really about the people who sustained it and who were sustained by it for millennia. And then the new people who came in and in three generations brought it to the brink of extinction. And to their credit, those same people who then brought it back from the brink of extinction. We're also doing our first non-American topic on it, Leonardo da Vinci. All okay. of those films are <laughs> underway right now. These are not development. They're not pipe dreams. They're not on a back burner. They're in various stages. You shame us all. First of all, I say to myself, I'm really glad you're doing all those projects. I'm eager to see all of them, number one. Number two, I want to say you make me feel like a slacker. Um, <laughs> no, you, no, you, no. Everybody feel like a slacker. It's like, my God, how is this man doing all this? I mean, each one of those is a project that I think many people who care about documentaries and who care about history will eagerly await them all. And so it's fantastic. I loved seeing the list of things you're working on going into the future. I will say about Ali for everybody, it's currently on the air. If you were listening to this podcast when it first comes out, it's on right now in the midst of its initial run. You can obviously watch it in off the archives after that. And I think everyone should. On this question of Ali and race, there's a, a wonderful moment, Walter Mosley talking in the film about how much it meant to him and how he internalized Ali's famous thing about why he wouldn't fight in Vietnam because no Viet Cong ever called him the N-word. So look out for that. And then I have my last question. And it goes to this moment we just lived through, you know, the Trump era, which has not ended in some ways. He's still out there. And the big lie is still 
a central feature of our politics and our culture. The man is now helping Republicans to claim in California, where I am right now, that the recall has been stolen, even though the election hasn't happened yet. So Donald Trump's still very much with us, and the racial components of that are obvious. I guess my question, my two-part question is, when will enough time have passed for there to be enough perspective to be able to bring your kind of eye? And I'm not literally asking, when are you going to start the project? I mean, like, how much distance do we need to be able to see it? And then having seen everything you've seen and lived through what we've just lived through in the last four years, you said historians and you are an optimistic lot. Are you optimistic having gone through what we've just gone through in these last five years? So usually we've been saying for the last 25, 30 years that we need 25 or 30 years distance from a subject to have the perspective necessary to make the kind of non-journalistic judgments. You know, the first rough draft of history is just that, a, a rough draft, and you don't turn it in. And so we, we need to have that process. But at time is accelerating so quickly that maybe you can lower it. I would really like to be able to treat this. I think at least 10 years has to go by. John, that's the toughest question I know. I am an optimist. I've never been so fearful for my country. I remember at 9-11, people crowded into my living room in my little town in New Hampshire. I don't know why. And I just kept pacing the floor and I said, the idea cannot be killed. The idea cannot be killed. And I, people have told me I, I gave courage and I gave some reassurance to people who were suffering through those events of exactly 20 years ago. But I'm, I'm scared for my republic. I think... There is, you know, some fundamental things. And I, it's interesting, you know, Robert Kennedy wrote an op-ed in 68, the year of Tet, quoting the poet William Butler Yeats about things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And you sort of feel like periodically we go through these really gut-wrenching things. I was very much alive, very much aware of the things happening, particularly in the first six months of 1968. It had a kind of doomsday thing. And I've grown up. I've had four children. I have grandchildren. I am not chicken little. And I am fearful for my republic. And I hope that everyone within the sound of my voice will continue to work with the same kind of efforts that they spent on this last election for future elections as they limit our right to vote, as they limit women's access to their rights, that we just have to redouble our efforts because they cannot win. I have seen what it looks like in other countries, and it's not a pretty picture. And we have to escape the specific gravity of that kind of, of horror. And it only just takes good people, the cliche goes, to look away and absolve themselves of responsibility. As I told you, I've been looking forward to this conversation. You and I have had various chats over the years, but never really had a long hoedown. Yeah, too quick. Yeah. This was wonderful. And I just, I couldn't be a bigger fan. And it's not just because I love the Muhammad Ali story so much that I'm recommending it. It is a great thing. And if, if you've never seen it, if you're one of the rare people in America who's never seen anything by Ken Burns, watch the Ali thing. And then you'll be like, okay, I got 40 years worth of stuff to look at now. I'm going to have to set aside <laughs> about six months to watch yeah, it all. That's about what it is. But it's very binge worthy. And Ken Burns, thank you for taking the time. Everyone watch the Ali doc on PBS and be grateful for Thank you, John. a guy like Ken Burns out there doing this kind of work for the us The feeling is mutual. I really appreciate this time and this conversation. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. My thanks again to Ken Burns for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie... 
Tender is our post producer, and Christian Pidel Castro Russell is our executive producer. 